in lieu of last week, he is still risen. Right? Every Sunday we come here because he is risen. And that's, that's where, that is where our hearts are connected to God because Jesus came out of the grave. Wow. All right, you guys need some more coffee or something. Because if that didn't light your wood, it's wet. All right. So today we're going to kind of wrap up Colossians. I know a lot of you uh, two weeks ago thought we were in chapter 4. We kind of brushed up on the last part of chapter 4 where Paul makes all of his greetings and sends greetings from all the guys that were working with him. And you were thinking, praise Jesus, we're out of Colossians. Wrong. We're going back to the beginning and we're starting over. You think I'm kidding. Okay, we're going to go through the whole book in one Sunday. And I'm going, what I'm going to do is I just want to kind of take you through some of the major portions for me. They may not be the same ones for you, but they are for me. And the reason I do that is because when, when you take a look at God's Word, when you sit down and you read it and you study it, you sit under the teaching of God's Word, every time God's Word comes to your ears, your mind, or your heart, God calls you to step up and do something. You're called to action. It's not a passive book. It's a book in which we're called to step up and do something that God's called us to do. That may be sharing our faith. It may be changing our behavior. It may be loving people deeper. It may be asking God to help me become the man or woman he's called me to be. But it always calls us to do something. And and quite frankly, if you read the Word of God or you sit under the teaching or you're studying in a small group and the Word of God has no external or internal effect on your life, I'm wondering what's going on. Because it's, it, it's, it's highly unlikely that you can sit under the teaching of the Holy Spirit and not have your life changed. And there are a lot of people that go to Bible studies. There are a lot of people who come in, in, into churches. There are a lot of people that, that hang out with Christian people and their lives reflect nothing of God. So this morning, I want to walk us back through some of these, these really important verses. There's, you know, because if there's no fruit, evidence of fruit or growth in your life from following Christ, then it says one of two things. Number one, you don't believe in the power of God to do any transforming work in your life through his word. Or number two, you came to faith and you became a Christian... And that's where you leave it because you, 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 you said to Jesus, I want you to come and be a part of my life so that I can go to heaven someday because I don't want to go to Riverton. It, it, it's it's uh, um, mind-boggling to me how... Some people can spend years studying the Word of God and have no transformation in their life. Just imagine it this way. A young couple, they're going to get married, and so they're all excited about the wedding day and everything. You know, and I'm not talking about Mitch and Megan. I'm just saying a couple. And, and so they, they, they send out the invitations. All their friends and family, they're gathering up, and they're coming together, and they're going to celebrate this great union of a, a man and woman coming together under the holy bonds of matrimony as God ordained it to be. And, and so everybody comes in. They, they watch this young couple say their vows to each other. Everybody celebrates afterwards with, you know, big celebration, dancing, and all kinds of great things going on. And it's all wonderful. And then about a year later, this young couple, the husband decides he's going to go on a vacation. So he takes off and he goes on a vacation somewhere. And, and as he's leaving, he has to stop in at his parents' place and his family's place because it's near the airport. And they say, where's your wife? And he says, oh, she's taking a, a, a girl's vacation with her girlfriends. 
and I'm going off by myself to do my thing. And then this young couple, they, they, uh, the, the wife, she will spend, you know, one or two nights a week going out for dinner with her coworkers or her girlfriends while the husband is watching a ball game or, or going watching a movie with his guy friends. And so they're doing all these things. The guy has a, a membership at the gym where he's pumping weights and lifting all the time. And she has a membership at a different place where she does Pilates and, and that kind of a thing. And, and so they're, they're, they're living these lives absolutely doing their own thing separately from one another. And, and the family and friends are going like, this doesn't look right. There's, there's something wrong about this whole thing because by all indications, the only thing they are is roommates. Sure, they have a wedding ring on their finger to, to say that they're married. And maybe they fit the legal description of a married person. But the reality is they don't live like married people live. Because what do married people do? Married people are together. They, they took seriously the vow that as they stood before whoever it was they stood before and they became one flesh in the sight of God that for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, they are going to be together and until death do them part. Not living together but separate. You see, and, and that's what happens in the Christian faith. We step up and we say, I want to follow Jesus with all my life, with all my heart. We make a public confession about it. And we might even get baptized about it. But then we turn around and we live totally separate from God. We'll show up to church and we'll show up to maybe a Bible study. And we might hang out with some Christian friends. But our life shows no regard for the Word of God being actively involved in what we're doing on a daily basis. We live as though God doesn't exist, even though we said, I'm not just going to date you, I'm going to be with you, and you're going to take me into eternity. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through it, and it's just kind of hitting on some of those pretty important things as we close off Colossians today. And the fact is, is that if we take even just, if you were to take four verses out of the book of Colossians and apply them to your life, your life would be totally transformed and it would be changed and God would be glorified. You know, what God does in our lives is for a daily process of spiritual renewal in our relationship to Jesus Christ. That's what he wants. And I don't know how many of you guys saw this on television, but today the National Geographic Channel is airing a six-part series called The Story of God, hosted by Morgan Freeman. In this series, Freeman travels to 20 cities around the world exploring questions about God. He says, we came away with the idea that we're much more the same than we are different. Every religion is after the same thing. He goes on to say the story of God also presupposes that religion was created to answer man's questions. But today we know why the earth shakes and splits, why the sun occasionally goes dark, why there is drought. Having that wisdom, however, does not displace the concept or the belief in the existence of God. You know what you call that? Hogwash. Pure and simple. That is hogwash. Because what he's trying to say and what this series is saying, and I haven't seen it, I just what I read on it, is, is that every religion has their own path to get to God. Their path, other religions' paths don't get you to God, they get you to the other place. And they are duped into believing that what just... You know, whatever you believe, believe it sincerely and you'll get there. Well, that ain't, that ain't the ticket. That's not going to cut it. That's not what's going to get you there. And that's exactly why Paul wrote this book to the Colossians church. It was the same kind of nonsense we're dealing with today. They were dealing with 
back then. Not a lot has changed. We still have the message of God. And, and, and there's, you know, there are so many false notions about God. And that's what Paul's trying to dispel. He, he's trying to help us to understand that we don't explain away the miracles of God. They really happen. And so we're going to start off uh, on this talk this morning. Uh, like I said, we're going to go right through the whole chapter. So we're going to start off in the first chapter, and we're going to look at verses 15 through 17. And, and these, these verses are foundational for your faith in God. This is where it starts. This is where you build the foundation. Here's what it says. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is, this is the foundation of our faith in Christ. It's not that Jesus was created by God to come and live among us and to show us a pathway to God. Jesus is God. And he came as God and lived on this earth, fully man, fully God. He never sinned. He met all the requirements of the law through his his death, burial, and resurrection. And through that process, he has granted to us who believe in him access to the Father in heaven. That is where we start on all things. If, if, if what you believe is off that, isn't on, built on that kind of um, theology, then you better start taking a look at your theology because it may be heresy. Good theology comes out of the Bible. Heresy comes out of a man's mind. And there's a world of difference between those two areas. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we might think are true, but we're not necessarily sure if they are true. But what we've done is we've become lazy, and we don't want to do all the hard work of discovering for ourselves whether what God really says is true or not. And so we'll ask some guy or woman... This is what the Bible says. Is that true? And then they'll go into a long pontification of what they think it is. And it may not necessarily line up with the Bible. And then they'll say some kind of malarkey like you really can't believe the Bible word for word and that it's the infallible word of God. It's fallible. And, you know, it's more of a suggestion and guideline than the truth and commandments. And as soon as you hear anything like that, you've got to say, you know what? You wouldn't know the truth if it bit you on your elbow. <laughs> Faith is only as good as the object in which you place it in. And people are placing their faith in objects such as maybe a wooden statue or a golden statue. They place their faith in dead people that are still had all the flesh eaten off of them by the worms. We place our faith on the one who conquered death, sin, and shame. He was buried, but burial tomb couldn't keep him hidden, and he came out of the grave alive and reigns forever at the right hand of the Father. That's the guy that we put our faith in. He's the object of our faith. He's the one that sustains our faith. He's the one that grows our faith. He's the one that gives the seed to our faith. He waters our faith. He matures our faith. It is built only on Jesus Christ that we have any kind of faith. And that faith for us starts as a saving faith, as as said in Romans chapter 10. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. We hear what Jesus has to say. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And we believe it to be true because 
Jesus said it was true. And guess what? It is true. All you do is look at your own life and you will notice how you have been saved from yourself. You're your own worst enemy because you will lead yourself down the path of temptation. You will take yourself to places you know you shouldn't go. You dwell on things in your mind that are not healthy for you to dwell on and you will tell yourself what to say to that person that you should have never have said. So Jesus saves us from ourselves because we hear the word of Christ. We believe that he is the son of God and that he died on the cross and he was raised from the grave. That's exactly what it says, you know, prior to that in Romans. Romans chapter, no, in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you believe with your mouth and you confess, if you believe with your mouth and you confess, no, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus was raised from the dead, it is by the belief in your heart and the confession of your mouth that you're saved. That is what we we believe in. But it's more than just saving faith that we have in Christ. It's a sustaining faith. In in Colossians or in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, it says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, as we walk, when you walk by faith, it means that you don't know what's lying ahead of you. You have no clue what tomorrow holds. But what you do know is that the one who holds tomorrow has you. And so you can trust him to take you to tomorrow, even though tomorrow may not be the way you wanted it to be. How many of you wake up on a, any given day and you, you go off to your job or you go to work or you go to hang out with your family or your friends and you've already calculated in your mind how this day is going to play out and how it's going to end at the end of the day and everybody gets tucked into bed living happily ever after. And within the first five minutes of your good morning, you have a fight with your wife about something regarding to socks and underwear and the laundry basket. And everything goes south from there. And all the things that we planned out to do in that day to make it a great day went into the trash can and none of it ever happened. And so when we go to bed at night, we're disgruntled and we're unhappy and we are absolutely just, our minds are like, I want to kill somebody. But you know what? In that very day, God was in it right from the very beginning. And he says, you're going you're gonna to have this little spat over here with your spouse. I want to be a part of that. Let me into that. Let me help you with that. Let me control your tongue in that. Let me show you what it means to be a godly spouse. You're having a problem over here with your kids. Let me tell you what, it like, what it's like to be a godly parent. You're having problems at work. Let me show you what it means to be a godly employee. You see, it's that faith that he grows and he continues to sustain in our lives and grow it day after day after day. And that's the reason why we believe that Jesus is the one who is eternal. Because he's there every day for us. You know, faith is saving and it is sustaining in its power. But to have a faith that is alive, it's only found in Jesus. And we do nothing to earn it. You didn't, you didn't impress God. You, he didn't go like, wow, I didn't know they were on the planet. Well, look at that, would you? We should just save them. That's not the way it works. But on the other side, because we didn't earn it, Jesus just gave it to us, and that's called grace and mercy. We never have to guess, like other religions, if we've done enough. We don't have to guess if we're good enough. Because Jesus has done it for us, and he's made us better than good enough. We're righteous in the sight of the Father. And so it, it all comes down to this thing that we're putting our faith into Christ and, and it becomes living proof to those around us that we love Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and entire being because he is who he said he is to be. All right. Let's move on to Colossians chapter 2. 
verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. We are rooted, built up, and established in Christ. Okay, so we go back to those, those first verses where he is the image of the invisible God. Well, the reason why we are rooted and built up and established is in Christ is because he is God. That's the only place where we can, we can get ourselves rooted and established. So what does it mean to be rooted and built up in Christ? To put your roots down deep into, into and immerse yourself into the word of God means that you're going to trust Jesus when you have no clue. And sometimes you need to trust Jesus even when you have a clue. That would be really helpful to you. It means to totally depend on God for your present life and your future life. In Jeremiah 17, it says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Who trusts is is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water. He sends out its roots by the stream. And it does not fear when heat comes, for leaves remain green. And it is not anxious in the year of a drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Now, I want you to catch two words out of there, fear and anxious. Because those are the words that will will just, those are the, the things that invade our lives when we haven't put our roots down deep into Christ. We let the fear of the unknown just knock the wind out of our sails. We get anxious about things that we have no control over. And God has control over all those things. And so what he's saying is, is that as we put our roots deep into Jesus, we have no fear, we have no need to be anxious. Because when the drought comes, and by the way, there is a drought coming to your life. You're either at the beginning of a drought, in the middle of the drought, or at the end of a drought. And, and that drought, spiritually speaking, is just simply this. I wake up in the morning, I open up the Bible, and it seems like dust blows out of the pages. It looks just that dry to me. And so I try to choke down a couple of verses and shut the Bible, and, and then I go to my time of prayer, and maybe the only thing you can muster out of your mouth in a time of a dry season is, Lord, help me. And then you're just kind of mean and crabby and a cranky old dude to everybody else that loves you. That's, that's a spiritual drought. If you're, if you're just irritable towards people all the time, if you're irritable towards your children, your spouse, your friends, if you're irritable towards God, guess what? You're in a drought. But don't panic. It's okay, because if your roots have gone down deep, you're still going to, as you open and choke down a couple of those verses, God's going to nourish your soul with that. And when you cry out to God and you say, help me, he's going to come alongside and he's going to lift you out of the junk. And then he's he's going to wrap his arms around you and he's going to bring encouragement to you. I have not met a single Christ follower who hasn't had a season of drought. We all do. It's part of just who we are as human beings. We can't, we just can't sustain it ourselves. And so we look to God to sustain all that for us. The reality is, is that we're just going to go through some hard times. We're going to hit these difficult times. But the thing that we have to do in the midst of all that, is trust the Lord. We just trust the Lord. You know, blessed is the man who trusts the Lord. You want to be blessed? Well, then trust God. All right. Chapter 3. You guys are going like, man, how come we couldn't go through the whole book of Colossians is fast like, you know, it's only been 18 weeks that we've been in it. I don't know what you're complaining about. All right. 
Colossians 3, 12 through 15. Put on then as God's chosen, chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. Paul's saying here that if we're going to live out this life we have in, life we have in Christ, then there are some things that should be evident in our lives as we live for Jesus. And the first one, he says, is to have a compassionate heart. The gospel brings with it sympathy and tenderness of heart. If we are new creatures in Christ, we must be compassionate people. We are to first and foremost be compassionate to those within the household of faith. No amens on that one, huh? All right, let me, let me back it up and come at it at a different angle. Um. It won't matter one lick to the people outside the community of faith if you're compassionate to them because they're watching you and seeing if you're being compassionate to those in the community of faith. Now, there are all kinds of people out there who are compassionate to wild animals and to their pets. And they're compassionate to the trees and to the weeds. And they're compassionate to every living thing except human beings. They want to kill them. They want to kill them when they're little itty-bitty little things that big inside the womb. There is no compassion in that. That is not following the love of God. That is absolutely the worst thing that could ever happen. And by the way, I just let me just say this. Let me throw it out there. If you were a, a, a lady that had an abortion, I know the pain you're going through because I've talked to hundreds of women that have had abortions. God loves you. And he wants to bring healing to your life. So don't listen to the words of the enemy that you're a murderer and that you're not good for anything. And you should just do away with yourself because that's a lie from the pit of hell. God loves you. He loves you so much that Christ died for you. He died for that unborn child. And he cares deeply about every aspect of your life, even your mistakes. God wants to redeem your mistakes. So if that's happened, I want you to know God loves you and so do we. And we're here to help. But here's the thing, is that we all have a choice when we are with other people. We can be kind by the way we interact with them, or we can choose to be mean and harsh to them. I moved right into kindness, just in case you didn't pick that up. Maybe I went down my notes a little too far, but you'll never know. Kindness is another one of those action words that God calls us to, to step in and be kind to other people. And the, the bottom line is, is that it's not a characteristic that we are naturally endued to. It's not one that just bubbles forth automatically. It isn't something that we just, we just ooze it out on everybody. Have you ever been around a two-and-a-half-year-old? There's not a kind bone in that diaper. <laughs> that kid will kill you. And so what we need is we need the word of God. We need the, the living spirit of God in us. Because if, if you go to Galatians 5, you're going to find that kindness is listed as one of the fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit. Not like a gift of tongues, but a fruit. It bears fruit in your life. Let me take a little bunny trail here real quick. When, when Paul talks about in Corinthians and other places in the Bible about the gifts of the Spirit, those are things that God gives like prophecy, tongues, um, helps, all kinds of different things God gives as gifts 
for us to use in the body. Those gifts can be counterfeited by the enemy. He can counterfeit tongues. He can counterfeit prophecy. He can counterfeit just about any gift that God, well, every gift that God gives, he can make a counterfeit just like it. But it's for evil rather than for God's good. But when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, he cannot counterfeit the fruit of the Spirit because it comes from the Spirit of God. And so kindness is one of those things that God brings and is, is fruit-bearing in our lives. You want to know if you're walking in the Spirit? You'll have the fruit of the Spirit bearing fruit in your life. Kindness is one of those. And Paul says here that that's what the church should be known for is kindness. Amen. There you go. You're with me. I had to bring you back in. You were drifting off a little bit there. Let's move to the next one, humility. And humility is quiet strength that comes not from who we are, but who God made us to be. We recognize that. I don't want to be somebody that God didn't make me to be. I don't want to be that guy. Humility is the absence of self-exaltation. And God wants us to have nothing to do with arrogant pride and false humility. Humility is knowing who you are in Christ and knowing that you can serve others confidently. And God loves those who have a humble heart and he will give them a reward through his spirit. In James chapter 4, James says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You want grace? Learn to be humble. Live in the humility that God gives us. The the humble person knows it's only by the grace of God that he has anything. He knows God has provided a job or income. God has given him a home. God has blessed him with a family, puts him in a faith community that loves him, that he has been saved by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That's humility. The person who, who wears the garment of humility knows who God is, what man is, and who he or she is, chosen, holy, and beloved by God. That's the, the life of a person who is humbled by God. Next, we are looking at meekness and gentleness. It, it just kind of, I don't know. And I, I, as my dad got older, he was less gentle. My goodness. Because he could never remember the names of the grandkids, so he'd say something like, Hey, you, over there, stop that. No name, just, you know. So, so every, every grandkid went, Ooh! and looked. And, of course, it was someone that was doing something they weren't supposed to be doing. But we're to, let me help you understand, it's meekness or gentleness. Meekness or gentleness. And, and it's the way that we interact with a caring heart towards those around us. The way that we, we recognize that somebody is having a hard time and instead of saying cowboy up, we put our arm around them and go like, what can I do to help you? What can I do to bring some peace to your life? What is it that you need most from God? We need some gentleness and meekness in our lives. That is what we're called to do as Christ followers in Colossians. The next one is patience. Everybody loves this one because everybody prays for it and never gets it. Right? Isn't it? God, come on now. Work with me on this. Amen? All right. Because we all say, Lord, give me patience. And then someone walks in and you go like, oh, I didn't mean it today. Because you know that person's just going to trample on the last nerve you have. They are going to wear you out. But we have the wrong idea about patience. It's not, you don't, you don't go over to McDonald's and go up to the drinking fountain and uh, I'm, I need a biggie size of patience today. Fill it up so that you can drink it and you'll have patience all day. It's absolutely when you are, you've got nothing left in patience that God gives you patience. It's not like, you know, he's sending someone along to test you to see if you have patience because typically we don't. We're in a rush and we don't want anybody to interfere with what we want to do. So we're just kind of short on it. And so it's also another one of those gifts of this uh, or the fruit of the Spirit. When you need it the most, that's when you call for God to give it to you and he'll give it to you right then. 
You don't carry it around in a camelback and suck it up when you need it. It'd be great. Unfortunately, God doesn't do it that way. He's going like, all right, I see your nerves are off. You're, you're, you're getting irritable. You're not being very patient. Just ask. Just ask. I'm telling you. You ask and I'm going to give it to you. That a boy. Here you go. Patience. These are the traits that we are to show to one another because when we show them to one another and we live them with one another, then in the greater community, we have a greater chance of having Jesus affect their lives because we're doing what Jesus has called us to do. Now we're going to go on to another one. Another part of these couple of verses here. And it says, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That's a really hard one, isn't it? I mean, but if, if, we're, if we're really going to say, I believe that Jesus is the, the visible expression of the invisible God and that Jesus himself is God and I've put my faith in God and I've come to faith in Christ for the forgiveness of my sin, then according to this, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. But Pastor Ken, how many times do I have to forgive him? (laughs) Seven times 70 in one day on the one sin that they keep committing. You understand that? So if a person comes and lies to you 4,000 times about one, I didn't steal that. I didn't steal that. I didn't steal that. I didn't steal that. 7,000 times in one day. You forgive them 7,000 times on that one issue. And then when they say he did it, he did it, he did it, you have to forgive them for that lying too. But then you paddle them because that will help them not to lie. It's really hard to paddle a 56-year-old man, but it can happen. So, I, you know, this is one of the big issues, though, in people's lives because I hear it all the time. I hear, I will never forgive that person. I will never forgive that person. Then I go back over here and I go like, now, wait a minute. You're supposed to forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. What has Jesus not forgiven you of? What, what has he not Did he forgive you for being a liar? Yep. Did he forgive you for being an adulterer? Yep. Did he forgive you for being a jerk? Yep. Did he forgive you for being mean? Yep. Did he forgive? Is there anything he can't forgive you for? No. Then there is nothing that you can't forgive somebody else for. And by the way, I wouldn't trade all the money in the world to be in your shoes if you have an unforgiving spirit. Because I, I, do, I want to make sure all my accounts with other people are taken care of before I stand before my Father in heaven. I don't want him to say, now, Kenny, pay attention, boy. Why didn't you forgive your brother John? I want to be able to look at him, and I want him to say, man, you imitated Jesus so well in forgiving other people. Isn't that what you want to hear from your father? Amen. All right. Let's move on. It's still in those same verses. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Now, here's the catch on all that stuff we just talked about, is that you bind all that stuff together in love. Not your love, the love of God. Because you can't do it. You can't do it in your power. You can't do it in your own strength. It's only through the love of Jesus that you can do it. So you, you bind all this stuff together in love so that you live in perfect harmony within the body of Christ. And then as you do that, then the peace of Christ will rule in our hearts. Hallelujah. Amen. We want peace. And we want it now. But there's the hard work of doing, doing it and getting it. It's these things that God's calling us to do. You want peace? All right. Then start living 
the way Christ has called you to live in Colossians. Start with tender, tender heart, compassion, kindness, gentleness, meekness, humility. Man, that's what brings peace. All right, chapter 4. I know you guys are going like, what happened to the rest of chapter 3? It's still there. You just read it later. Chapter 4, 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom towards out, outsiders, making the best use of the time, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We all need a little bit of wisdom, don't we? You know, here's, here's what it is. The, um, we all have knowledge. Some of us have uh, a, maybe a little bit limited knowledge because we haven't been on the planet that long to gain more knowledge. You read books, you gain knowledge. You read the Bible, you gain knowledge. You hang out with people that are smarter than you, you gain knowledge. You get all this knowledge. And what do you do with it? You stuff it up in your head. And you got all the knowledge up here. But there's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom. Because what wisdom says is you take the knowledge that you have and you use it for a greater good. For the kingdom of God. To love other people. To care compassionately about others. To be kind to others. Now you take all of this knowledge that you have about God and you live it out in your lives. We, we, we are to walk not as foolish people, but as wise people. We are, conduct, we are to conduct ourselves with wisdom. Wisdom is the use of knowledge to reach worthy goals. You can know a lot of things and be very unwise. Having knowledge and using knowledge are two different things. Wisdom is being able to take what you know and make use of it with a worthy goal. So wisdom has worthy goals in view. The Bible says that wisdom is knowing and doing what is right. And I think there's a lot of people that are satisfied in their lives just by having a lot of knowledge and not ever doing anything with it. And therefore, they lack wisdom. So the truth is this. It's doing the right thing and not just knowing what the right thing is. I think the, uh, of wisdom is seeing things as from God's perspective. How does God see this? And then respo- responding according to biblical principles. That is, how am I to respond to the situation from God's viewpoint? That keeps me at the center of God's will and doing what God wants me to do and enabling me to become more of the person that God wants me to be. And when you are at the center of God's will, there is no safer place on the planet, even if you're in Afghanistan, in the middle of combat. If you're in the middle of God's will, you will be no safer anywhere else. So this whole thing in talking about outsiders having wisdom towards them is because God wants us to be wise in how we communicate with those people who are outside of the community of faith. He wants us to speak their language in a way that they understand about the grace of God. They want to, he wants us to, to talk with them in, in using the knowledge that we have and bringing it as wisdom to speak the truth of the grace of Jesus to someone so that they get it. So if they're going, oh, aha, and, and, and it's, it's, it's bringing all this stuff together and being creative and tactful in our, in our language and in our thoughtfulness. It's having a feel for the moment, having an eye for what people need and want in order to buy up the opportunity that God has placed before us so that we use our Thoughts and our knowledge with wisdom. It's being wise with your spouse. It's being wise with your children. It's being wise with your employees or your boss. That's what it means to take God's knowledge and use it, apply it to lives. And, and it says, how do you do that, though? I mean, how, how can you really do that? Well, it says right there in verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. I take this to mean that what we say about Christ and about the life we have in Christ should make people hungry, if I can put it that way, that Jesus is an appetizer 
The words we say are an appetizer to the full meal of Jesus. When food is not salted, it tastes kind of, you know, ucky. Have you ever eaten baby food? You know that little, those squished up peas? You know, I mean, everybody has, right? You take a little scoop of that and you go like, oh, no wonder the kid hates it. <laughs> Got to throw this stuff out. Well, that's, that's what our lives become like. Without the saltiness of the Holy Spirit in our life, we are bland. Why, why do you think people always say, Christians are so boring? Because we are. So knock it off and be interesting. There's nothing more interesting than God. I mean, you go, you, you can go anywhere and you can say, hey, you want to talk about God? And they go, well, I don't want to talk about God. Why don't you want to talk about God? Because God, he's mean. Well, why is God mean? And all of a sudden you're in a conversation about God being mean. You see, people want to talk about that. But you have to salt it. You have to bring it before them. How can you ever uh, uh, develop the ability to speak about Christ if there's no appetizing flavor to it? How do you learn to talk about Christ in a way that makes people's mouths water for more? I think the answer is simply, every day you spend time in God's word with God, and then you'll have something to say to somebody. Some of us have been Christ followers for a long time and we neglect the crucial business of enjoying Jesus. And then when the opportunity comes along to commend him to someone, we realize that all the reasons he is wonderful have been neglected and the keenness of our own taste buds have grown very dull. And it's hard to salt your speech with deliciousness of Jesus when you haven't been enjoying the taste of him yourself. Taste of the Lord and see that he's good. That's what this whole, this whole book about Paul is so wonderful. It, it, he, he's preparing us when we believe who Jesus says he is and, and we believe it with all of our being and we're not just saying it to, to, to make somebody happy or to, to buy our way into heaven, but we absolutely believe it with our entire being, then guess what we become? a walking billboard for Jesus. We're the best advertisement Jesus ever had. You notice Jesus doesn't have a website or a Facebook. That's because he's not relying on technology. He's not in the yellow pages. You can't look him up except in the Bible. And his best advertisement is your life lived for him. That's the advertisement. You want to be a good advertiser for Jesus? Do you? I'm not asking a rhetorical question. Do you? All right. So I've got this really great thing. By the way, did I mention at the beginning of this talk that we were going to have a test? There is an exam. You will be tested on this information. Some of you are going like, wish you would have told me. I would have taken notes. Listen, I took notes and it didn't help me one lick. So... Um, you want to, I'm going to read through that. You get, you, just put them up. Are they one at a time? One at a time? Okay, one at a time. Do you believe the truths about Jesus that Paul pens in this letter? If so, how are you living a life like you believe them? What does it mean to be rooted, built up, and established in Christ Jesus? How are you demonstrating compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience to those around you? Is there someone that you have not forgiven? What will it take for you to forgive them just as the Lord has forgiven you? What is your conduct towards outsiders like? How can you make your speech more gracious and salty? What are the things you need to do to live your life as living proof of the reality of your relationship with Jesus? Now, did I go through those too fast? All right. Okay, boys. Listen, I wrote this test out. So they're going to, you want, if you want to take the test home and take the test, and fill it out. Raise your hand. They'll give you one. If you Listen, you don't have to take it. I'm, you know, this isn't mandatory. So if you're going like, I don't do well testing, that's fine. I get it. Okay, because that's me. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this test home. And I want you to fill it out. And I want you to, to think about your answers. So keep your hands up so they can see you. Um, they're deacons. They're not that bright. 
And old, too, matter of fact. So, um, so go home. You're out. How many more do you have, Brian? All right. Right in that door. Put your hands up so I can see how many people want tests. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, eighty, ninety, hundred. If you make probably thirty more, that'd be great. Thank you. This is how we this is how we do altar calls. We get you to raise your hand for a test, and then we count it as you just got saved, so we can put it in the books. And we have a big number that came to Christ after Easter weekend. So, all right. So. What I really want you to do with this test, I want you to take it home. I want you to think about this and answer these questions. And and all you have to do is answer each question and you can get 100% on the test. You will get an A. I'm an easy professor because your answers are your answers. How you answer these is all up here. And so what you write down is the correct answer for you at this point. So these are the things that I want you to do. And by the way, Do not mail them back to me. Don't bring them next week. I don't grade papers. I don't do that. Just, you know, if you want to let me know that you took the test, just come to me and say, hey, I filled in every answer. I'll have a gold star for you or something. Just make you feel good about yourselves. All right? Do we have an amen on being done with Colossians right now? Amen? It's a good book. Good letter. It will satisfy your soul if you follow Christ in it. And that's all I want you to do is just to trust God in all this stuff, to know what he means, that he says what he means is is trustworthy. And you can live by it. And your life will be changed. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that... You've given to us everything we need to be successful in this life with Christ. You have provided all the answers to the exam already. You have given us everything that we would ever need in order to be successful as Christ's followers. We just need to do it. And I know you don't want any of us to have an incomplete on our paper. You want us all to step up. You want us all to be A students. You will make us A students. And so it's not what we do. It's what you're doing in us that produces the men and women you want us to be. And so thank you for Colossians and the way that it transforms our lives. We commit this time to you and our lives to you in the great name of Jesus. Amen.